Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, we don't know exactly uh, yet whether they broke the law or not. I will accuse the Biden administration of not being transparent. Why didn't we hear about this on November 2nd when the first batch of classified documents were discovered? Well, there's a lot to answer for for the Biden administration. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? It's Poppy. Missing one, Caitlin. She's off today on a very cold day. And you're freezing, right? Freezing. <laughs> No football this weekend? No football. I did no live television this oh, weekend. Yeah, Vikings. just kind of took it easy. Get over it. So we got to talk right. about another day, another classified document, it appears. Even more classified material discovered inside President's Biden Delaware, President Biden's Delaware home, giving House Republicans more ammos, giving Democrats headaches, what they're now demanding from the White House Republicans. Also, there is yet another storm, if you can believe it, pounding California right now after weeks of relentless downpours, deadly flooding and several feet of snow. Is there any relief in sight? And tragedy striking the University of Georgia football team just hours after celebrating their national championship. What we're learning about the crash, the car crash that killed an offensive lineman and a team staff member. More on all of that in just a moment. We're going to begin with House Republicans going back on the attack. They're officially demanding information from the White House after even more classified documents turned up inside President Biden's, President Biden's private home in Delaware. Over the weekend, White House lawyers revealed the president's staff discovered five additional pages of classified material during a search of the property. And now the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, has sent a demand letter to the White House to turn over... Uh, evidence for a congressional investigation. He is defending his decision to focus the probe on President Biden and not the former President Donald Trump. With respect to investigating President Trump, there have been so many investigations of President Trump. I don't feel like we need to spend a whole lot of time investigating President Trump because the Democrats have done that for the past six years. So no one's been investigated more than Donald Trump. Who hasn't been investigated is Joe Biden. It just shows the hypocrisy and why the American public does not trust their government. You know, Congress has an independent constitutional obligation to oversee all aspects of the Justice Department, and that includes special counsels as well. And so we will have a role in overseeing what's transpiring here. All right, the coma part, that's hypocrisy, obviously. Meanwhile, House Democrats are focused on differences between President Biden's handling of classified material and former President Trump. We were delighted to learn that the president's lawyers, the moment they found out about the documents that day, turned them over to the National Archives and uh, ultimately to the Department of Justice. That is a very different posture than what we saw with Donald Trump, where he was fighting for a period of more than eight months to not turn over uh, hundreds of missing documents. Uh, I still would like to see Congress do its own assessment of uh, and receive an assessment from the intelligence community 
of whether there was an exposure to others of these documents, whether there was harm to national security in the case of either set of documents with either president. Let's bring in now CNN's Paula Reed live in Washington. Paula, good morning to you. Even more documents uncovered and this drip, 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 not good for the Biden administration and for Democrats, quite frankly. Not good at all, Don. But what was interesting here is that the president's team took a different approach. What we've seen over the past week with these new revelations seemingly every day is that instead of letting this news leak out through the media over the weekend, the Biden team got out in front of it. They announced the discovery of these five additional pages that were among previously recovered documents from Biden's Wilmington home. But we're told not to get too used to this new transparency because they really want to balance their desire to let us know new information with our other desire, which is to just let this criminal investigation play out. President Biden, leaving Atlanta Sunday, did not address the discovery of new pages of classified material among the records recovered at his home. On Saturday, the president's legal team revealed in a statement that five additional pages with classified markings were discovered among the materials previously discovered at his Wilmington residence. As of now, approximately 20 documents have been uncovered at two locations connected to the president. CNN has learned 10 classified documents were found at his former office in D.C., among them, information about Iran, Ukraine, and the United Kingdom, and those documents included top-secret information. On Thursday, the White House revealed documents had also been found at the president's Wilmington home, in a storage space in the garage, and in what was described as an adjacent room. Attorney General Merrick Garland also announced Thursday the appointment of Robert Herr to serve as a special counsel to oversee a criminal investigation into the matter. The document authorizes him to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with this matter. Herr is a former Trump-appointed U.S. attorney and Trump-era Justice Department official. He will take over from John Lausch, the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who led the initial review of classified documents found at Mr. Biden's office and recommended Garland appoint a special counsel. Over the past week, new details about the classified documents have leaked out mostly through media reports, with the White House deferring to the Justice Department. We're just not going to get ahead of the process from here. And the president trying to defend why classified documents were stored in the same garage as his sports car. My Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But on Saturday, in what appears to be a shift in strategy, the White House was the first to reveal that additional pages had been found. But that has not stopped Republicans from calling for more investigations. We're doing the Biden family influence peddling investigation. And I can tell you what we've learned just in the last few days from Biden's mishandling of classified documents is that the Biden Center was funded primarily through anonymous donations from China. But Democrats emphasize that Biden and his team have cooperated while Trump is under investigation for obstruction. To President Trump, who refused to cooperate, who refused to comply with a subpoena and who ultimately forced the Department of Justice to execute a search warrant to retrieve the classified documents. And that is where we need to be uh, centering this conversation. 
One of the biggest questions right now is the timeline. These first documents were discovered back on November 2nd. The Biden team then decided that they would do additional searches in locations where things were shipped during the transition. Now, that wasn't completed until last Wednesday, nearly two months later. And sources tell us that not every possible location has been searched, so more documents could still be uncovered. Oh, boy. Paula Reed, thank you very much from Washington this morning. Poppy? Well, tragedy after the ultimate triumph. A University of Georgia football player and a staff member killed in a car crash this weekend just a few hours after celebrating the team's back-to-back -back national championships. This happened early Sunday morning near the school's campus in Athens, Georgia. It's where we find our CNN's Isabel Rosales, who joins us now. Reading about this waking up Sunday morning, it is absolutely tragic. What do we know about the crash? Yeah, Poppy, it is rocking this community. And we're, we are getting a sense of how this happened from a police statement. Their car, for some reason, veering off the road, striking a power pole and going through these trees right behind me. You can see the down limbs and then continuing striking right here, the edge of this apartment complex where you see that it is now boarded up. So Willock and LaCroix, they died from their injuries. Two other football program members were inside of that car as well. They were hurt. And we are getting new information from the Athens Banner Herald, which has identified one of those two members as UGA football player Warren McClendon and citing his father. He said that the player left the hospital with stitches on his forehead. Now back to Willock. According to the football roster, he is from New Jersey. He is an offensive lineman and he played every game this season. Meanwhile, we are working, Poppy, to learn more about Chandler LaCroix. But here's what we do know about her. According to her LinkedIn, she was a a football recruiting analyst for UGA Athletic Association, head football coach Kirby Smart. He spoke out about her in a statement saying Chandler was a valuable member of our football staff and brought an incredible attitude and energy every single day. I want you to take a look at this video uh, from a Saturday showing the team on top of a fire, uh, a fire engine just celebrating this national uh, a championship victory, a victory parade right here in Athens. They were so happy. Fans, the community, just so happy. It's just heartbreaking coming off of a celebratory week. The entire Bulldog Nation is, is, at, is at a loss, and I can't imagine what his family's going through. Yeah, and Poppy, just hours before uh, on social media, this young player is spending time with Willock, uh, the player allowing him to wear that championship ring as well. Poppy. Our thoughts with their families, just an absolute tragedy, Isabel. Thanks very much. Yeah, it certainly is. A University of Alabama basketball player has been removed from the team after being charged with capital murder. Police arrested 21-year-old Darius Miles and a second man in connection with a shooting near campus that left a woman dead. The 23-year-old victim was shot while sitting in a car. Investigators believe the shooting stemmed from a minor altercation. To California, we're there, if you can believe it, facing even more rainfall after another weekend of disasters across the state. The latest round of heavy rain expected to spill well into today. As weather experts warn, the oversaturated ground could trigger more flooding and more landslides. Governor Gavin Newsom echoed those concerns over the weekend. The challenges uh, will present themselves over the course of the next few days uh, rather acutely, particularly because everything's saturated, particularly because the grounds are overwhelmed. What may appear less significant in terms of the rainfall may actually be more significant in terms of the impacts on the ground and the flooding uh, and the debris flows. 
So this weekend's rain, the latest in weeks of heavy, relentless rain, has only added to the devastation that has unfolded there. You've got continued flooding, swollen rivers. There was also this moment caught on camera. This is in Pescadero, California. The roads were so saturated. That is part of a cliff, right, that just fell off. Meanwhile, winter storm warnings were posted for the Sierra Nevada mountains over the weekend. The heaviest snow expected to continue there through this evening. And then there was this rescue, not rain, wind, or high surf. Stop these crews from saving a driver in La Jolla Saturday evening. While it is unclear how he ended up stranded there, they airlifted him out of his FCV, hanging halfway off the edge of a cliff. President Biden has approved a major disaster declaration for the state. It's coming really just as needed. California is expected to get much need a much needed break in this rain a little bit later this week an opportunity to really get those recovery efforts underway don well today the nation honors dr martin luther king jr he would have turned 94 yesterday if he weren't gunned down nearly 55 years ago outside the lorraine motel in memphis we have to choose a community over chaos are we the people are going to choose love over hate These are the vital questions of our time and the reason why I'm here as your president. I believe Dr. King's life and legacy show us the way and we should pay attention. That's President Biden speaking yesterday about Dr. King's legacy at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And on this day every year, Americans tend to remember these 35 words. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But his legacy is so much bigger than just that one quote, bigger than the March on Washington. Dr. King's legacy was consistently one of nonviolence in the face of oppression, coalition building and brotherhood of mercy, but also of justice. How long? Not long. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The day before he was assassinated, he spoke of being to the mountaintop uh, with acknowledging his own mortality. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, coming up in our 8 o'clock hour, we're going to talk to his son, Martin III, Martin Luther King Jr. III, about his father's legacy in today's politics, particularly when it comes to voter suppression. Look forward to that conversation ahead. All right. Also ahead here on CNN this morning, the desperate search for survivors after a Russian missile obliterated an apartment building in Ukraine. We'll take you live on the ground in Dnipro. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff A very close call between two planes at New York's JFK airport now being investigated by the FAA. More CNN this morning to come after the break. There is palpable grief and anger in the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro after a Russian cruise missile slammed into a nine-story apartment building over the weekend. It killed at least 36 people. One neighbor tells CNN the closer she got, the more it, quote, looked like hell. Our Fred Plankton is live this morning in Dnipro. Fred, thank you for being here. Again, civilian targets. 
Yeah, civilian targets and certainly many civilians killed, many civilians in, uh, injured as well, uh, Poppy. And I can tell you, being on the ground here, it's been absolutely tragic to see these rescue crews really doing their best. But in the past couple of hours, it's only been dead bodies that they've been pulling from the rubble. This is already one of the deadliest such incidents since Russia's full-on invasion of Ukraine. And here's what we witnessed. The morning brings to light the full extent of the destruction. The residential building, home to dozens of families, annihilated down to the foundation. Even though rescue crews still work, the chances of finding survivors now virtually zero. All night, residents watched in fear, anger and grief. Olha Nevenchanaya says she passed by the building only about half an hour before it was hit. There are many friends and people close to me here. Many, many, she says. Olena Loyan, stunned by the scale of the destruction, curses the Russians. I simply hate them. Children, people died here, and then she can't speak anymore. Throughout the night, the death toll continued to jump. On top of the many killed, Ukrainian authorities say dozens were injured, many of them children. In just this location in Dnipro, one of many sites in Ukraine, Russia targeted with barrages of missiles this weekend. The Ukrainians say the reason why the damage here is so extensive is that this building was hit with a cruise missile called the KH-22. That's designed to destroy aircraft carrier strike groups. And obviously, when it hit the building, it completely annihilated it, burying dozens of people underneath. The Ukrainians call the attack state terrorism. And the president says rescuers will continue to try and save anyone trapped here. Let's fight for every person, President Zelensky says. The rescue operation will last as long as there is even the slightest chance to save a life. But even the slightest hope has now all but died, and this is essentially a recovery operation. The crews searching for bodies where so many lives were violently ended in an instant. Fred, the Ukrainians say this was a missile that was designed actually to destroy aircraft carriers. So you can imagine, no wonder the damage that it did to that building. Do the Ukrainians at this point have any way in terms of defensive weaponry to stop these? Yeah, you know what they say they don't. Let me just get out of your way also, Poppy, so we can see a little bit of what's going on behind me while I talk to you. Uh, they say they don't have anything that are, that's capable of stopping these missiles. We have to keep in mind they have about a two-ton uh, a, a two warhead uh, or one-ton warhead inside that missile. And the Ukrainians say that right now they have nothing to intercept those missiles. Mm -hmm. uh, they're wildly inaccurate. The Ukrainians are saying that possibly those Patriot systems that the Ukrainians are getting from the U.S., where that training is currently going on, that those could help them shoot those missiles down because the Patriot systems are simply more long range. Now, of course, one of the things that the Ukrainians have been saying is that they would need a lot more of those Western air defense systems to give them a better chance to shoot down missiles like the ones that were used in this attack here, but of course, other missiles as well. Right now, they say, as far as this is concerned, they really have no chance of shooting it down. And these missiles really are wildly inaccurate. They're only accurate to within about 500 yards, Poppy. And, and so destructive, as we can see. Fred, thank you to you and your team on the ground for that reporting mm -hmm. in Dnipro, Ukraine. Don.
And now this morning we go to Nepal where they are mourning its deadliest plane crash in 30 years. Authorities now scrambling to determine what brought the aircraft down, leaving at least 69 people dead. The country is often referred to as one of the riskiest places to fly. Soon as Ivan Watson live in Hong Kong with more. Ivan, good morning to you. What is the latest? Well, the the rescue workers are searching for three of the 72 people who were on board this uh, domestic flight. It was a Yeti Airlines flight. It was only supposed to be flying about 25 minutes from the capital, Kathmandu, to this uh, city of Pokhara. And uh, air traffic control lost contact at about the 18-minute mark. There's video shot by an eyewitness uh, of the plane suddenly banking to the left. And not even seconds later, the sound of an explosion uh, and it crashed into a deep gorge. So the recovery, the rescue effort, very complicated, uh, involving ropes and cranes to try to pull people out. Most of those on board were citizens of Nepal, as well as uh, travelers from countries like Russia, Korea, Australia, Ireland, Argentina, uh, and France. Uh, the uh, rescue workers say they have retrieved the black box, and it is in good condition. All right. Thank you very much for that. Ivan Watson, we appreciate it. We'll continue to update. Debt ceiling drama. A standoff between Republicans and Democrats threatens to crater the U.S. economy. Can they reach a deal? Well, welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Coming up, Gen Z partying like it is 1999. Why they have known what the old folks have been telling us forever to, about those flip phones. So now Gen Z is suddenly obsessed with flip phones. Eh, okay, we'll talk about it. What's behind this trend? Plus, an American wrongfully detained in Iran is now on a hunger strike. The message he is sending to President Biden. And how much alcohol is harmful? How much is harmful? We're going to break down the long-term health risks straight ahead. Okay. I've been harping on this for a long time. What is it? And everyone's telling me, oh, we have, you know, it's not going to come till this summer. But now the debt ceiling. All right. The debt ceiling. Trying to raise the roof. Yes. (laughs) Janet Yellen with this letter warning of really scary times ahead if Congress doesn't do something. The U.S., the Treasury Department warning the U.S. could default on its debt as soon as June. Wow. uh, Setting up one of the first major battles on Capitol Hill after Republicans took control of the House. Watch. Republicans were elected uh, with a mandate from the American people in the midterm elections. We campaigned on the fact that we were going to be serious about spending cuts. So the Senate's going to have to recognize the fact that we're not going to budge. The fact of the matter is we can do deficit reduction. We can deal with uh, our national debt. Uh, But at the same time, the last thing we ought to be doing is playing chicken with the American economy. Joining us now, CNN Congressional Correspondent Lauren Fox, CNN Chief Business Correspondent Christine Roman. So, Christine, let me just begin with you. What's at stake here? Because this letter that Janet Yellen sent to Speaker McCarthy warned of, in her words, quote, irreparable harm to the U.S. economy if Washington doesn't get its fiscal house in order. This is about America's reputation, America's promises. We promise the rest of the world that we will pay our bills and pay our... We run at a deficit in this country, have for years and years and years and years. And that works fine because the rest of the world buys our debt gobbles up our debt, actually, because we are such a creditworthy nation. So what is the debt ceiling? It's exactly what it sounds like. This is the limit, the total amount of money the United States is um, is authorized uh, to borrow to meet its existing legal obligations. This is the credit limit. 
Now, here's what happens. Congress does this over and over again. Congress, together as a body, decides to spend money. And then Congress later says, we don't want to pay the money we already spent. We don't want to pay the credit card bill. And then you get into these perennial fights over raising uh, the, the debt limit. We've done it over and over again. A hundred years ago, a century ago, Congress set a limit to try to, you know, chasten the body to don't spend more money then than you, you need to spend. Yeah. But they do it all the time anyway. And then you risk America's credibility. You risk America's financial standing in the world if you don't actually pay your bills. Let me to go to Lauren. Lauren. <laughs> Lauren. Lauren. Uh, the thing that I keep thinking about is, OK, we came to the cliff but didn't fall off the precipice in 2011. Mm-hmm. So we won't do it again, right or wrong, because this Congress is very different well, than 2011. Yeah, and already Republicans in the House of Representatives are staking their claim, saying this is the moment to get the country's fiscal house in order, that they want and are demanding spending cuts as part of any negotiation to increase the debt ceiling. Senate Democrats are already laying out that is a non-starter. And the White House making it clear that is not how this negotiation is supposed to work. But One of the major issues right now is the fact that Kevin McCarthy, as part of his effort to become the House Speaker, already made a deal with conservatives that he would not bring a clean debt ceiling bill to the floor of the House, Poppy. And that is really where we start this debate with just about five months to go until we really reach that maximum estimate to when this debt ceiling and these extraordinary measures can continue, Poppy. Can you... Can you explain the significance of why of Janet Yellen saying, Christine, that in a few days, January 19th, we're going to hit that limit a lot sooner than we thought? So we're going to hit that limit, but then she is going to move money around to make sure that we can still pay our external bills as long as possible. And then this summer is when there would be the real crisis, right? So moving money around, what does that mean? It means not paying into... Uh, civil servant retiree funds right now, which doesn't that sound like a bad thing to be doing, you know, not investing in certain accounts that you need. It shows weakness. It shows a Treasury Department that is working around the clock to uh, to sort of juggle until we get to this really more important date in the summer. And then what happens in the summer if you have some sort of showdown in Washington? Poppy and I have covered this in 2013 when they got real close. In 2011, which was just a disaster. I remember. You lose your, yeah, you lose I your. remember the government shutting down. And, yeah, yeah like you lose your credit rating, twice, your AAA right? credit rating, and then the rest of the world suddenly looks at you and says, wait, if they're not going to. If they're not going to pay their bills, if they're not going to if they're not going to honor their commitments on the world stage, then we don't want to buy their debt. And then suddenly you've just unraveled everything that the country is based. It's just very, very bad and dangerous. And there are people who say smart people who say we shouldn't even have a debt limit. Right. If Congress does this over and over again, spends the money and then says we're not going to pay for the money. Why even have a credit card limit in the first place, you know? Well, and why get why go down to the wire every single time? It's just political gamesmanship that they're, yes. they're playing. Yes, yes. It must it? pull well to be to, to, to be able to pound on the table and say we're going to get our fiscal house in order. Now, there are Democrats who would like to get the fiscal house in order, too. Don't forget, you know. But this is one of those things that Congress does. Over, it's Groundhog Day, and it's dangerous. Thank you, Lauren, there in the dark. We see you. Thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Christine. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Well, the Cincinnati Bengals set to face off against the Buffalo Bills again for the first time since Amar Hamlin's on-field collapse. 
A controversy surrounding where the next game is going to be played, though. That's ahead. And it appears, get this, flip phones are making a comeback. Why they're becoming the new vintage obsession for Gen Z. That's straight ahead. Do you So we talk some sports this morning. The NFL playoffs are underway with a weekend full of action-packed games, and there's still one more on tap tonight. Coy Wire joins us now. Coy, it was a great uh, weekend for wings and beer and football watching. It was really interesting. <laughs> Where are we watching tonight, Don? Where are we watching tonight, baby? Hey, four second half come from behind wins. That's tied for the most ever in the opening round of the playoffs. Buffalo. Uh, has been on an emotional roller coaster, right, Don? Last couple of weeks. Today marks two weeks since the 24 year old safety, Damar Hamlin, went into cardiac arrest on the field. He cheered his team from home yesterday as he continues to recover. Buffalo charging out to a 17-0 lead in this one, Don. Almost nobody giving Miami a chance, playing with their third-string quarterback, but they find a way to hang in there, taking the lead in the third. Zach Sealer scooping up a Josh Allen fumble for a touchdown. Josh Allen had three turnovers in this game, but he makes up for it for Bills Mafia, throwing two touchdown passes over a span of just three minutes. First to Cole Beasley there. That gave them the go-ahead score in the third. And then Gabe Davis, toe-tapping in the end zone for this one. It's like the Bills were riding a, a high last week on a Thanksgiving feast with good news of DeMar Hamlin's recovery. But this week was kind of like a post-meal crash, barely hanging on. 34-31, Josh Allen says, hey, survive in advance. We'll take a win any way we can get it. One-week season, man, it's, that's it. Got to take it 1-0, uh, one game at a time. Um, thought we did some good things today. Um, I did some bad things today, you know, some stuff to clean up, some, some things to learn from, um, but we'll grow from it. It's all, all that matters is surviving and advancing. Um, it doesn't matter how we win, it's if we win. Buffalo will host the Bengals in the next round in a rematch of the canceled game in which DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest. Cincinnati, they needed a huge play from their defense last night to advance over Baltimore. Ravens quarterback Tyler Hundley trying to reach the ball over for the go-ahead score in the fourth. The game was tied, but somehow Cincinnati's Sam Hubbard, all 6'5", 265 pounds of a rumbling for a touchdown, 98 yards. Hubbard is born and raised in Cincy, so he's now the hometown hero. This was the longest fumble return in playoff history. Huntley, you'll see here, getting that ball punched out just a tad shy of the go-ahead score. Cincinnati advancing. It's bye-bye to Baltimore. I was in the right place at the right time and was just worried about getting hogged down. I'm glad I made it to the end zone without getting tracked. We know that these playoff games are never pretty, and by any means, we just had to get it done. Great team effort by everybody. Guys stepping up left and right. That's playoff football. How about those New York football giants bursting into the playoffs for the first time in six years? Saquon Barkley, see you later. 28 yards for the score. They tied the game with the Vikings after they took the early lead. But quarterback Daniel Jones had the game of his life. First player all time with 300 yards and two touch, uh, touchdowns passing, along with 70-plus yards rushing in a playoff game. Giants win 31-24. They'll face the Eagles in Philadelphia next week. You have the Tom Brady's Buccaneers facing the Dallas Cowboys tonight. Don and Poppy, it should be on and popping. 45 years old, can Tom Brady do it again? We will see. On and Poppy. Yeah. <laughs> popping. Did you, did you wear the purple tie for me because you felt bad for the Vikings? Um, I didn't want to go there. I know that's your hometown team. They fought valiantly all season, but when it mattered, ooh, sorry for many. 
terrible day for us. You're but be all right. I'm going to be fine. Right. I'm going to be fine. My daughter is still rooting for the Giants. She's like, Mom, I'm born in New York. You know, so she just added a little salt to the wound. Smart kid. <laughs> hey, we'll take a couple, hop on that Buffalo bandwagon, Poppy. All right, there Let's you go. go. I am going to get on the Buffalo bandwagon. Thank you, Corey. There we go. Okay. Corey. See you okay. later. Thank you. Okay, ring, ring. The 90s are calling. Seriously. Gen Z apparently has a new vintage obsession. The flip phone. Videos are popping up all over TikTok of young people unboxing them and tapping taping, I should say, tutorials on the low-quality camera on their flip phones. The devices are being sold for as little as 20 bucks at big-box retailers like Walmart and Amazon. Even singer Camila Cabello recently tweeted, I am team flip phone revolution. Maybe I can write a theme song, guys. This is part of a growing trend of young people seeking to unplug. Psychologists say as smartphones and social media becomes more... Universal, the rate of depression among teams has also increased. Now many are beginning to leave their smartphones behind and take their flip phones to parties instead. I hope that's true. I hope it's just not a fad. I actually hope it's true because I think people are too much on their phones all the time. I totally agree. But why are they putting it on? on, Someone, how are they getting it on TikTok? With a different smartphone? I don't know. But I mean, it's. I'm sure they... To go out, go back to the other device to send it. They take the picture on the old phone and they send it to the new phone. And they probably get it on the. But anyways, whatever. I hope it's true because it would just be good if young people disconnected from social media. So I much. agree. You know when you I still have a flip phone, by the way, do. a couple. Yes, yeah, so does Chuck Schumer, and I have a BlackBerry. I don't use it, but I still have one in a box somewhere. This is my regular. You know phone. how you know you're old when you're reading the <laughs> and prompter in the and, it's, <laughs> and you're reading the teleprompter and it says young people <laughs> i'm like wait i i was one speak yeah, for yourself i'm that. still young you are babe I'm a, I'm a millennial gen z okay uh turning the page here to a very serious story though next an american who is still after seven years wrongly detained in iran has launched a hunger strike with a message to President Biden. And this was really scary. A very close call between two planes at New York's JFK airport now being investigated by the FAA. An American in prison in Iran is launching a hunger strike to mark the seven years he's been in prison since being left behind in a prisoner exchange. Siamak Namazi was arrested in 2015, interrogated for months, then charged with espionage. He's written to President Biden, urging him to do more for wrongfully detained prisoners. It's great to see you. It's Kylie Atwood now. She joins us now live from Washington, D.C. Kylie, good morning to you. What does he hope to accomplish with this hunger strike? Well, listen, this perilous mission is part of an effort to try and attract the attention of the person that he believes matters most when it comes to bringing him home, and that's President Biden. And overnight, Don, we saw a Twitter account that was launched by his family and his lawyer, and they'll provide updates as to how he's doing throughout this hunger strike. Sia McNamazi, an American wrongfully detained in Iran for more than seven years, is embarking on a hunger strike today and calling on President Biden to do everything in his power to bring him home. Sia uh, feels desperate and reaching out publicly to the U.S. president uh, underscores that desperation. Babak Namazi says the goal of his brother's letter to the president is to remind him of what happened seven years ago when Biden was vice president. Five Americans wrongfully detained in Iran returned home and Siamak was left behind. It's just a horrific week is to think that seven years, uh, you know, seven whole years have gone by, which could have been avoided. 
In his letter, CMAC pleads for Biden's attention, saying all he wants is, quote, just a single minute of your time. For each year of my life, I lost in Evan prison after the U.S. government could have saved me but didn't. That is all. Siamak remains in the notorious Evan prison. There are also two other Americans wrongfully detained by the Iranian regime right now. The hardest question for him to answer is, how are you doing? He writes to Biden, quote, how do I explain the devastation my family and I are left with after so many half-hearted prisoner deals crumbled last minute, turning freedom into chimera? How do I convey the excruciating terror that comes with not knowing when or how this nightmare will end, or even what comes next? President Biden, uh, CMAC is begging you, my family is imploring you, uh, please, please take what it takes. You make those courageous decisions that we know you are capable of. Now, an NSC spokesperson told us that it is outrageous that Iran continues to detain Americans for political leverage and said that the Biden administration is working tirelessly to try and bring home all three Americans, Siamak Namazi, Ahmad Shargi, and Murad Tabaz, who are all still wrongfully detained in Iran. Don? Kylie, thank you so much. Okay, so a lot of people started drinking a lot more during the pandemic. How much alcohol is too much? We've got the sobering, pun intended, results ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There is dry January, and then there are those who say, pour me another. Either way, we are learning it is more important than ever to mind what you drink. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is here to break it down. This is actual medical data on what is too much. Yes, it definitely lets you know that excessive drinking really can be a problem. The CDC scientists who did the study, they took on the enormous task of looking at deaths and saying, hmm, how many of these were attributable to excess alcohol? So they looked at everything from drunk driving accidents, which obviously are all about the alcohol, to things like cancer and heart disease, where alcohol can play, excess alcohol, I should say, can play a factor. So here's what they found out when they looked at deaths attributable to excess alcohol into What they found was for ages 20 through 49 that one in five deaths were attributable to excess alcohol. And for ages 20 through 64, it was one in eight deaths. And so you might wonder, well, if you drink a little bit, is it a problem? Let's take a look at how CDC defines moderate drinking. In other words, not excessive, but moderate drinking. CDC says for men, it's no more than two drinks a day. For women, it's no more than one drink a day. And I'll add a little PS to that, which is you can't kind of add them up. You can't abstain all week and then have seven drinks on a Saturday night. That's called binge drinking. That has problems all its own. This is two per day <laughs> Why are you or looking one at me? per day. Poppy, Don. Thank you. Elizabeth, she was looking at me when you said. <laughs> I was trying to, one for women, yeah. more than one is excess. I think it has to do with muscle mass and size in general, right? It does. It has to do with size and it also has to do men and women, you know, simply sort of metabolize alcohol differently. Yeah. So I've got to ask you about this dry January. Listen, I think we talked about this, Elizabeth, during the, you know, during the pandemic. 
I did dry January and ended up going the entire pandemic, 14 months. I know, I was so impressed. drinking nothing, a gummy, nothing. And you wrote a best-selling book as a, a book. result. I was so clear, whatever. But so we're right in the middle of dry January now. Are there any benefits uh, to being dry all year long and not just this month? So first of all, that's amazing, Don. It's, that's really great that you did that. So if you know someone like you who tried dry January and you found yourself thinking clearer, you found yourself feeling better or less tired, keep doing it. Listen to your body. If your body liked not drinking, don't drink. But the CDC doesn't say that all drinking is bad. They don't come out and say all of us need to be teetotalers. They say, look, there is such a thing as moderate drinking, and those are the amounts that we just went over. And they also say, this is important to remember, if you're not drinking, don't start thinking it's going to, you know, maybe be good for your heart or whatever. If you're not drinking, that's great. Don't start. Yeah. Thank you. It was good, though. I do have to say, like, you start and you start feeling well, better. And you, you do stop missing it after a few weeks? I never. Listen, I, not people, people would ask me, are, are you going to the meetings? I'm like, I'm not an alcoholic. No. I just wanted to be clear. And it actually felt good. I mean, I exercised better. I slept better. I looked better. I lost sleep weight. Sleep is the thing, but Elizabeth. I get, really like, now at 40... If I, even if I have one glass of wine, I wake, what, then I'm 40, yeah. I'm 40, that I wake up in the middle of the night. It's just different when you're old, when you're old like me. <laughs> it, it, it is different. We're not, we're not 18 anymore. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Elizabeth, thank that's you. That's true. Thanks, Elizabeth. Seeing in this morning continues right now. Right now. to choose a community over chaos are we the people are going to choose love over hate these are the vital questions of our time and the reason why i'm here as your president i believe dr king's life and legacy show us the way Good morning, everyone. Today is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We're so glad that you can join us. Uh, Caitlin is off. Obviously, she's not here. Um, and this Poppy and I, you doing okay? Good morning. I'm doing. I'm doing great. Yeah. yeah, it's good to be by your side. It's good to be by. It's a. It's a good day. Mm-hmm. Not so great for the current administration. From bad to worse, really. President Biden's aides finding more classified documents at his home in Delaware. Now Republicans are demanding information. Millions of Californians under a flood watch again this morning as that state prepares for even more rain. Plus an extremely close call at JFK Airport. The FAA now launching an investigation into how two commercial planes nearly collided. Details on all of that coming up, but we're going to begin with new details about the classified material found at President Biden's Delaware home and the fallout. Here's what we know this morning. The White House confirms the president's aides found five additional pages of classified material on the same day a special counsel was appointed to investigate the matter. That brings a total number of classified documents recovered to about 20. The White House counsel's office announcing it will no longer answer questions about the controversy because of a special counsel investigation underway. President Biden's personal attorneys say that they have been trying to balance the importance of public transparency with protecting the integrity of the investigation. But the president has not been transparent enough for House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer. He is demanding more information from the White House. Well, we don't know exactly uh, yet whether they broke the law or not. I will accuse the Biden administration of not being transparent. Why didn't we hear about this on November 2nd when the first batch of classified documents were discovered? 
Well, Democrats are coming to President Biden's defense determined to highlight the differences between Biden's handling of classified documents and Donald Trump's. We were delighted to learn that the president's lawyers, the moment they found out about the documents that day, turned them over to the National Archives and uh, ultimately to the Department of Justice. That is a very different posture than what we saw with Donald Trump. So let's bring in now CNN's senior White House correspondent. There she is standing in front of the White House, of course, MJ Lee. MJ, good morning to you. Look, there is a difference, but if you're explaining, you're losing, because over the weekend we got yet another update for more documents being found. So what is going on here? Yeah, good morning, Don. You're right. Uh, yet another update from the White House Counsel's Office over the weekend about more classified documents that were found that we weren't previously aware of. Uh, we are talking about five additional pages of classified documents that were found at President Biden's Wilmington home on uh, Thursday night. This is according to Richard Sauber. This is a special counsel to the president. He says that he went over to the Wilmington house uh, with DOJ officials to hand over one classified document that had been discovered on Wednesday. And it is at this point that this group uh, discovered the additional pages with classified markings. Uh, now, he says that the DOJ immediately took over those documents and that now that a special counsel has been appointed, appointed to investigate this matter, the White House Counsel's Office is no longer going to be answering questions. Mm. And the president's personal lawyer put out this lengthy statement over the weekend trying to defend how everything has been handled so far. That's kind of tricky. Again, so many details. I'm not sure if the American people are, can parse the details. I'm sure they know the difference. But at the end of the day, MJ, one person had documents that were mishandled. Another person had documents that were mishandled. And then maybe that's just how the public is going to see it. But what did the lawyers say? Yeah, I mean, we are clearly seeing the White House playing defense right now. Uh, as you said, the president's personal lawyer, Bob Bauer, uh, put out a pretty lengthy statement over the weekend trying to explain the different processes that the White House and lawyers around the president uh, have followed throughout this process, and particularly explaining why lawyers couldn't really disclose all of the information that they knew at any given time uh, for fear of, of interfering with an ongoing DOJ review. Now, I just want to read a key part of that statement from Bob Bauer uh, that I think uh, tries to explain a major part of this process. Uh, he says, because President Biden's uh, personal lawyers do not have active security clearances, uh, whenever a document bearing classified markings was identified, the search was suspended of the box file or other space where the document was discovered with the potentially classified material left in the place as found. Now, he says the government was then promptly notified. It is for this reason that the president's personal attorneys do not know the precise number of pages in the discovered material, nor have they reviewed the content of the documents consistent with the standard procedures and requirements. Now, the White House has faced a ton of questions about both the messaging and just the transparency front. And I think what we can say with certainty right now is that it is very possible that in the coming days and weeks, we could be learning about uh, additional classified documents. We just don't know. Boy, MJ Lee starting us off at the White House this morning. Thank you, MJ. So let's talk about this with the legal heavyweight Donald Ayer. He served in the Solicitor General's office under President Reagan. He served as Deputy Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush. Good morning, sir. Thanks for joining us. 
Good morning. Glad to be here. So we were struck. Thanks for coming on because we were struck by two op-eds in two days in two different publications. One was yours in The Atlantic uh, with two others on the byline. The title is Biden's classified document should have no impact on Trump's legal jeopardy. And then there's this piece in The Washington Post, quote, if the Mar-a-Lago case collapses, disaster dodged America. That one argues that a case against Trump, quote, will probably not be brought no matter how many side by side charts are created to distinguish between the known allegations against Trump and the parentheses so far unknown culpability of Biden. It goes on to say, according to the latest Gallup data, 45 percent of Americans identify as Republicans or leaning toward the Republicans, 44 percent Democrat or lean in that direction. The Justice Department serves them all and its credibility rests on being perceived to play fair. So you wrote in your piece one of the most superficial parallels. Only the most superficial parallels can be drawn between the two. But I just wonder, Donald, if you think in the eyes of the public, these cases are just inextricably linked. Well, that's why we wrote the article we wrote, is because it's certainly true that, that when you have two presidents, one current and one past, who both have, you know, it's fair to say their team's and them perhaps have mishandled uh, classified documents. Um, it's really important to understand what conduct's at issue. And as far as we know now, as you just accounted, um, the Biden people clearly made a blunder in having these documents taken and, and taken away from the White House. There's no two ways about that. But it appears from what we see, and Time will tell if it's true, but it appears that they don't have any interest in concealing these documents. They're not trying to keep these documents. They're as eager as anybody to get them back where they belong in the government. And Trump's team and Trump himself, it appears from the evidence, have actively been engaged in, in essentially figuring out ways to not give them back over a period of many, many months. Now, it's that intentional concealment and obstruction that gives rise to criminal uh, possible prosecution. And that's the key difference here. So I think what's important is the pub, for the public to try to understand um, essentially the, the, the critical difference, why it matters to have a former president deliberately keeping and concealing uh, classified information of the highest uh, you know, sensitivity. Um, and, and I think Gar- uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general has actually handled it quite well by appointing special counsels. Because clearly there are people out there who are going to say, even though I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's justified, there are people who are going to say, oh, Merrick Garland works for Joe Biden, so Merrick Garland's in the tank and he'll do whatever Joe Biden wants. Not true, but much better to have someone who's actually an excellent lawyer, but also a Trump appointee looking at the Biden situation. So I think that's where we are now. And I hope people can learn from it. That that was really uh, back to back as it pertains to the Biden documents. Merrick Garland sort of went out of his way to make sure it was Trump appointees first out of Chicago and now the special counsel, a Trump appointee as well. I do wonder the chair of the House Oversight Committee, uh, James Comer, says subpoenas are on the table for the Biden White House in this case. If that happens, if you were working in this White House, you worked under two Republican administrations, but if you worked in this White House, what would your advice be? 
Well, I think I think it's clearly inappropriate <clears throat> for Congress to be investigating an ongoing investigation of a, an ongoing criminal investigation. They can look at it after it occurs, but they don't have any right. It's a, really a separation of powers violation to come in in the middle of an ongoing investigation and essentially try to disrupt it by, I guess, what they want to do is make public what's going on in the investigation. One of the very sacred things about our criminal process and the investigative process that the Department of Justice engages in is that it's not supposed to publicly pillory people or facts that are under investigation. The job is to investigate, figure out what the facts are, figure out if there's a case to be brought, and then bring it, and then talk about it. But you don't do it while you're investigating. So I think clearly one would resist these subpoenas with regard to the ongoing criminal investigation. So you think McCarthy's wrong uh, when he said yesterday on Fox News there's an obligation for Congress to do this now? Yeah, well, I, I think certainly they have a right to do oversight, certainly of what the executive branch is doing, but they don't have a right to get into the specifics of an ongoing criminal investigation. I mean, I'm afraid what we're going to see is you know, really an effort that's entirely aimed, talk about politicization, it's entirely aimed at trying to politicize the situation in a way that they believe will appeal to far-right MAGA Republican supporters, and they want to stir up that pot. And it's really regrettable because this country doesn't need to have controversy and conflict stirred up anymore at this point. Former Deputy Attorney General Donald Ayer, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank, thank you. To California now, where more rain is expected today in an already rain-soaked state, atmospheric rivers have devastated communities from weeks of storms, leaving floodwaters in its wake, thousands of evacuations, and 19 people dead so far. Seeing as Natasha Chan live for us in Novato, California, for CNN this morning. Good morning to you. What are you seeing on the ground today? Yeah, Don, this is the ramp to State Route 37, and this section has been closed since Saturday afternoon because the Novato Creek has been spilling over onto the highway. Now, crews did a great job of pumping water off of that roadway yesterday, but this ramp to the State Route remains closed because they're worried the overnight rains will just bring that water right back. This is just one of the many issues keeping emergency crews extremely busy throughout the state. Dramatic helicopter rescues in California. Emergency crews rescued this woman while fighting high winds and heavy rain. The unrelenting storms have left California reeling with deadly floodwaters, washed out roads and mudslides. By some estimates, 22 to 25 trillion gallons of water have fallen over the course of the last 16, 17 days. In the state, around 8 million people are still under flood watches, and thousands have been forced to evacuate after atmospheric river events left whole neighborhoods looking like lakes. But some are choosing to ride out the storms. We just got our power back on two days ago, and now it just went out. So we're firing back up the generators, keep our freezers and refrigerators cold. Several rivers have overflowed, including the Salinas River and Russian River, causing flooding in nearby communities. The large amounts of rain saturated the ground and caused roadways like this one in Pescadero to break away and slide down a cliff. And in Los Angeles, a downed tree crushed cars in a parking lot of a shopping mall. 
It came down and then there were four cars or three cars over there. They got hit. Four people were in one car. Two of them were able to get out okay. The other two, we had to help them out, but no injuries. One community got inventive, installing a zip line to cross the rushing waters after a bridge washed out. Well, you live in the woods, you know, you just kind of got to be prepared. In Belmont, part of a hillside came down into a neighborhood. And in Fairfax, a mudslide displaced 19 people. I thought I heard thunder. It was not thunder. It was a hillside giving way behind the two flats behind us. Uh, trees went into their bathroom. It was coming down this broad and about this deep, all mud flow. The Sierra Mountain region in Northern California saw up to three feet of snow in some places. The heavy snowfall left highways treacherous. I'm wishing it would quit for a while. I'm tired of it. Now, this rain will let up later today. The high wind advisories will let up later today. But because there's been storm after storm here in the last couple of weeks, the ground is so saturated, the rivers are saturated, there's still a lot of threat of roads giving way, trees coming down. People we've talked to in the area say they welcome the rain to help with the drought, but they wish it was more spread out, bringing new meaning to the phrase, when it rains, it pours. Don. Certainly does. Natasha, thank you. Well, this morning, the FAA launching an investigation after two planes nearly collided on the runway at JFK. The terrifying moment involved one plane about to take off. Another plane crossed right in front of it. Air traffic controllers quickly alerted the pilots who slammed on the brakes with just a thousand feet to spare. Our Pete Muntean joins me now. You think about it all the time, especially at busy airports. Uh, how did it get this close? No doubt. You know, seconds to spare, Poppy. We'll lay this out for you. But the good news here is that this was avoided thanks to the quick thinking of that air traffic controller in the tower at JFK and also the quick reaction by that Delta crew on board that 737. This is the react. Uh, this is the uh, animation from Flight Radar 24. And you can see the Delta flight there was about to take off uh, on runway four left there at JFK when an American Airlines 777 crossed right in front of it. I want you to listen now to the urgent by the air traffic controller in the tower, warning the crew of that Delta flight to slam on the brakes and stop to make sure they don't hit that other plane taxiing across the runway. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. Now, the FAA says about a thousand feet of separation between these two planes in the end. Sounds like a lot to a layman. About a thousand feet is about three uh, football fields, but pretty close in aviation terms when you think about this, Poppy. You know, this is known as a runway incursion. Uh, these happen all the time, according to the FAA. 1,600 of them in 2022, typically not as dramatic as this one, although the consequences are written in blood. The Tenerife disaster back in 1977, two 747s hit each other on the runway. 500 people killed. The single worst airplane crash in commercial aviation history, Poppy. That pilot, that Delta pilot, calm. Very calm. Hey, can I ask you something, Pete, that I'm not quite sure about? So how fast, the Delta plane was about to take off. Do you know how fast 
was it gaining momentum or was it just the beginning yeah, of the taxi? They were they were accelerating for takeoff. And this is something that pilots practice all the time in the simulator. They're typically not very uh, often confronted Oof. with it in real life. And so they were just about uh, before the uh, speed that you need to take off. You have to commit at a certain point. Uh, and so once you hit that speed, you have to keep flying. Yeah. Uh, they did not get there just yet. And so thankfully, they were able to stop and accelerate, stop before that 777 that was still on the runway. Can you imagine if you were on that plane, too? Wow. No, but every time you're a pilot, every time I get off a plane, every single time I look in the cockpit and I say, thank you. <laughs> Serious. Thank Wise you. Wise words. Thank you, Pete, yeah. and thank you, our friend. I like, I like what my friend Joy Behar does. What does she do? She goes, she, when she gets on the plane, she goes to the cabin. She goes, everybody sober up here? Oh, <laughs> I'm worse. I'm like... How's it looking? Yeah. Any turbulence? What's yeah. ahead? And my husband's like embarrassed going yeah. back to our seat. A lot to come right. from Ukraine and beyond. Yes, right? a lot because there are dozens dead this morning and dozens missing in Ukraine after a Russian cruise missile hit a nine-story apartment building. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper joins us next on the state of Putin's war. Plus, as legal troubles mount for Congressman George Santos, we're going to speak with his former roommate who claims Santos is also a thief. More CNN this morning to come after the break. American Pain, Sunday, February 5th at 9 on CNN. Well, this morning, rescue efforts continue in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro after a Russian missile strike on an apartment building killed 40 people. Dozens have been saved from the rubble, including children. Meanwhile, in the east of the country, fighting rages on in the town of Solodar, despite Russian claims that its forces have taken that town. So joining us now to discuss is a former defense secretary under President Donald Trump, and that's Mark Esper. Thank you so much uh, this morning for joining us. Uh, Secretary, listen, we have been getting reports from our folks there on the ground. Um, just this morning, we had just had a report moments ago about the brutality. It hasn't really stopped. Civilians are dying there. How do you make sense of this phase of the war? Well, you can't, Don. It's just horrible what happened, uh, the killing of three dozen civilians. But it's been going on for months now, and it will continue to go on uh, because this is all that the Russians have left in terms of their strategic approach to the, to the uh, conflict. Uh, that said, I think that uh, they seem to be preparing for some type of offensive in the spring. And my sense is the Ukrainians are, are trying to do the same. And I think that's what we need to look out for in the coming weeks and months. So, Secretary, could you speak to what Ukraine needs at this point? Because Frederick's reporting last hour for us, he's on the ground in Dnipro, showed us that this kind of weapon that was used to take down that apartment complex is actually meant to take out aircraft carriers. That's how powerful it is. And that the Ukrainians do not have the defensive weaponry to to block it. So is that coming to Ukraine from the West? And if it's not, what can they do in the face of that? Yeah, look, I think the fact that they had to use an anti-ship missile to destroy an apartment building tells you about uh, the Russians' ability to supply, to, to, uh, to uh, support their own war. They've been running low on munitions, material, and men until they held the conscription uh, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I think the problem right now is Ukraine is kind of trapped in the Russian method of warfare, this stalemate where you're grinding, uh, using infantry and artillery, and it's just a grinding piece of warfare. I think what the Ukrainians need, they need to break out of this, they need to fight their fight. And the key to that is for the United States and its allies to provide um, the Ukrainians with 
armor and with uh, mechanized fighting vehicles. And they, they've already committed to providing the fighting vehicles, the Bradleys and Martyrs and other mm -hmm. things. Uh, but the tanks are next. Uh, importantly, the Brits just decided to provide Challenger 2 okay. tanks. Uh, but, but what we've been waiting for is for the Germans to provide their tanks. And I think when that happens, once we get them delivered to the Ukrainians and Ukrainians can train up, then the Ukrainians can go on a counteroffensive and reclaim large swaths of their country. Well, let's, let's dig into that uh, a little bit more. You said you're waiting for Germany, but the, the UK, Poland, France have said that they're going to provide these tanks to Ukraine. Finland is saying that they are considering doing the same. So the significance of this move for Ukraine and for Western support for Ukraine, because without Western support, Ukraine would not be in the position that they are now. And they, it, that support has to continue or they're going to fall behind. Yeah, and just to be clear, Don, the, the, the Poles and others, have, and France has promised to provide fighting vehicles, promised to provide fighting vehicles, but not tanks. To provide the tanks, they need German approval. Now, the Brits have okayed uh, the provision of 14 Challenger 2 tanks, but you can't do much with, uh, with just 14 tanks. So I think what we're trying to do is nudge, push the Germans along to approve the re-export of tanks and provide their own. But that said, the, the bigger picture is this. Again, we need to get out of this stalemate, this this war of attrition and allow Ukraine to get on the counteroffensive. You know, just the last few days, we've begun training uh, hundreds of uh, Ukrainian soldiers at an American military base in Grafenvier, Germany, another important factor. Hmm. Secretary Esprit, because we have you here, uh, we'd like your take on the national security implications of now two back-to-back uh, -back presidents uh, mishandling uh, classified documents. So uh, we know that some that were recovered of the 300 at Mar-a-Lago uh, we're, we're top secret, right? We, we saw the markings. It also turns out that some of the Biden classified documents that were mishandled, not stored correctly, were also top secret. They included some intelligence memos. They included um, topics like Ukraine, like Iran, like the UK, memos from President Obama to Biden and Biden to Obama, calls with the British prime minister, on and on. Even, I thought it was notable that yesterday on ABC, um, Adam Schiff, Democrat, former chair of the uh, Intelligence Committee, didn't rule out that national security could be compromised as a result. Here's what he said. Is it possible that national security was jeopardized here as, as, as many, including you, uh, raised that possibility with the Mar-a-Lago documents? Uh, I don't think we can exclude the possibility without know knowing more of the facts. How concerned are you that national security may have been compromised? Well, I am concerned, and we really won't know the impact until the damage assessments uh, conducted by the intelligence com uh, community are completed. And I'm, I'm glad those have begun. And I said this last summer with the, when it came up with Mar-a-Lago, we need to have those damage assessments. assessments. We need to understand whether uh, sources and techniques were, were exposed and revealed, uh, because that could really hurt our national security. It could hurt our military capabilities. So we just need to find out really what happened, who had access, uh, what was in the, the documents, uh, and, and so on. For the political realm, I'm not sure that you, what you can say about this, but I have to ask you anyway. Do you think that one investigation hinders the other? And you know what I'm talking about. Does a Biden investigation hinder the Trump investigation? Because they're, listen, I think to most people, they're kind of the same. Both people had documents in their possession that they shouldn't have. The circumstances are different, though, Mr. Secretary. Do you think one hinders the other or one affects the other? Well, both men were irresponsible. The situations are similar, but not the same. Uh, I think from a legal perspective, um, it, it shouldn't one should not hinder the other. 
But from a political perspective, obviously, it all gets mixed together from both sides in terms of who did what, when, what it means, uh, who was more responsible or, or, or irresponsible. So I think the you know the bigger issue to sort through, more challenging one, is are the political dynamics and what that importantly what that means for Merrick Garland down the road when he once the special counsels have com completed their work and they pre present recommendations to him, he's going to have to decide. And I think at that point, uh, the two do have some interaction, will have affect one another in terms of how he proceeds. All right. Certainly an interesting turn of events. So I think we can all agree on that. Thank you, Secretary. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So the top Republican on the House Oversight Committee calls... The committee calls Congressman George Santos a bad guy who will lose his job if he broke campaign finance laws. Up next, we're going to talk to two experts about his biggest legal problem, including a $700,000 loan. Why this? A penny is raising a red flag on many of his expenses. We're going to explain that. I think people know, though. Well, another day, another revelation from Republican Congressman George Santos passed. Back in 2020, he worked at a company that he called 100% legitimate. The following year, the SEC was calling it a classic Ponzi scheme. Santos' lawyer says his client was just as disturbed as everyone else to learn about those allegations. But that's just the latest news that's putting the new New York Freshman on shaky footing. So fellow Republican James Comer, the new chair of the House Oversight Committee, says if Santos broke campaign finance laws, then he is out. Look, he, he's a he's a bad guy. This is something that, uh, you know, it's really bad. Uh, he's not the first politician, unfortunately, to, to make it to Congress to lie. You know, it's pretty despicable, the lies that he told. But at the end of the day, it's not up to me or any other member of Congress uh, to, to determine whether he could be kicked out for lying. Now, if he broke campaign finance laws, then he will be removed from Congress. OK, so losing his job may be the least of his worries with so many investigations mounting. We have two pros who know all about these kinds of allegations specifically, and they're joining us now. The former general counsel at the Federal Election Commission, that's Larry Noble, and CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Good morning to both of you. Larry, I'm going to start with you. What is the biggest legal threat facing Santos right now? Well, good morning, Don and Poppy, and thanks for having me. Um, probably the biggest legal threat are questions of where the $705,000 loan to his campaign came from. Um, and this is a man that when he ran in 2020 said he had few assets or reported few assets. And now all of a sudden he's reporting large assets and allowed that allowed him to make a $700,000 loan to his campaign. A candidate can make a loan of any size to their campaign, but it has to be their own money. So the question is, where did that money come from? And if that money came from another source mm -hmm. and it was for the purpose of him giving to his campaign, then he violated the law, and it's a serious violation of what's effectively money laundering, a contribution in the name of another, probably an excessive contribution, could have come from prohibited sources, and that can be both civilly prosecuted and criminally prosecuted. So it's interesting, uh, Jennifer, that Matt Gates, Republican Congressman Matt Gates, actually asked Santos this question last week. Where did that money come from to fund your campaign? Here's what he said. Look, I've, I've worked my entire life. I've lived an honest life. I've never been uh, accused, sued of, of any bad doing. So, you know, it's it's my it's the equity of my hard working self. And I, I've invested inside of me. 
Well, I mean, that's not true that he hasn't been sued of doing anything bad. Look at the ongoing case in Brazil right now for essentially stealing a check, fraudulent uh, finances there. What are your questions about his finances specifically right now? Yeah, well, he didn't answer the question, Poppy. I mean, yeah. what happens is he reports $50,000 in income and then turns around and all of a sudden has millions of dollars and he's giving his campaign $700,000 of it. So where is that money coming from? You know, it's as Larry said, it's a campaign finance violation, almost certainly. But he's also in more trouble than that if it's a Ponzi scheme, which his previous employer was deemed to be by the SEC, if it's a different kind of financial fraud. You know, those penalties are greater than campaign finance penalties. So he's in a whole bunch of hot water here on the campaign finance side, but also potentially regular old financial frauds. Uh, Larry, i got to ask you then, look, uh, there's so much. Let me just ask you very simply, does he face, what's the possible, what's the, what are the legal ramifications here? Jail time, is that possible? It's possible. I mean, normally campaign finance violations are handled as civil matters, but the Department of Justice can launch its own investigation, and there are criminal sanctions if it's a knowing and willful violation, meaning he knew what he was doing and he knew it violated the law. Uh, so I think this is the kind of case that DOJ may very well look at, the kind of large amounts of money getting into a campaign not knowing the sources of that money. And his idea that, that he worked hard and, 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 and um, earned this money, where is it showing up on his reports? Uh, in 2020, he didn't have it, so he must have gotten it since 2020. And his financial disclosure reports with Congress doesn't really show, as it should, the real source of the money. It shows it coming from his company, but he doesn't, doesn't show any clients. So there's something just very fishy about all of this. And, you know, when you talk about sanctions, also I should mention there is the possibility, remote, that he could be expelled from Congress. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. It's a two-thirds vote. But there's also that. So, you know, I think he does face real problems. And I don't think Congress should avoid looking into this. And I think DOJ and the FEC is, are going to have to look into this. Let's talk about the penny. Do you still, where's your penny? Oh, Don, gosh, Don brought a penny oh, up in the, before we went to commercial because this is really key. The penny. Yeah. So, so his campaign, Jennifer, filed all of these expenses, $199.99. That number matters a lot because when you hit 200, something changes. And we're talking about everything from restaurant bills at subsequent restaurants, the W Hotel in South Beach, which our team looked in, in October is like $600, not $199.99. Why does that number matter so much and could put him in legal jeopardy as it pertains to campaign spending. That one penny, that that one penny. They knew what they were, he knew what he was doing. Right, so dozens and dozens of expenditures on the ex expenditure reports that you have to file, say, $199.99. $200 is the limit at which you have to collect the receipts and have them available Prove for it. inspection. Exactly. So what you have here, it's like structuring with a bank. When you see all of these numbers just under the one that triggers some sort of additional scrutiny, it makes you suspicious, right, that those are falsified. So you have dozens of $199.99, no receipts for all of those. Does that mean that those expenditures were bogus? I mean, there are also a lot of expenditures to companies that were brand new, not working in the campaign space, tied to Santos and people close to him. So there's lots on the expenditure side as well that's really fishy that the FEC and federal prosecutors should be looking into. There was this watchdog group last week who filed a complaint asking the FEC to investigate. Do you think, and you know, you've been talking about this and the legal jeopardy, Larry, but I mean, will they, how far do you think this will go or should go at least considering what you know about this case? Well, based on what I know about this case, I don't think there's any doubt that the FEC should launch an investigation. 
at the very least. And then let's take it from there. Let's get it answers to all these questions. The problem with the FEC is that in recent years, it has deadlocked over serious investigations. Um, mm -hmm. The three Republicans in the FEC have basically said they don't want to investigate unless you give us proof that there was a violation. Um, so I, I'm somewhat skeptical. But having said that, there are cases that are even too much for the FEC where they say they have to investigate this. I think this is very well one of those cases. Because one of the things, going back to the expenditures for a second, one of the things is that one of the allegations is that he's used some of this money for personal use, which, again, is a serious violation. It's one that the candidate himself will be liable for. Uh, and if what he was trying to do was hide the real sources uh, or the real uh, um, uh, expenditures uh, and where they went to, because some of this could be seen for personal use, that even shows some sort of scheme. Now, I don't know that's what happened, but it is very strange to see 199.9. I guess it's the you know, $199 store for political expenditures. But, you know, but we've, I have not seen that before. And it's, it's pretty blatant. The, the chair, we have to go, Larry, but just can you just respond to this? Because a new chair of the House Oversight Committee, you saw uh, James Comer there saying, oh, people lie all the time, you know, but this is not that. This is beyond that. that for him to say that is a little too cute. I, I think he also said if he did something like financially wrong, he's got to go. I mean, look at the evidence. Go, yeah. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Larry. But the lying all the time, that is very serious here. I mean, he's not just lied potentially on his uh, campaign finance reports. It's also been alleged that he has lied about his background, um, that, he, that he did not go to the college he said he went to, that he did not work at the places that he said he worked. Um, he potentially lied about his family background. I even heard him on, I guess it was a radio show or podcast the other day saying that he uh, played soccer for Baruch, where he didn't even go there, and that he needed knee surgery because he plays. He's such a hard player. Seems he lies about a lot of things, and so uh, yeah, and and a uh, volleyball. I'm sorry, volleyball, and um, and I think that you know that tells you something. If those are all true, if those are all true lies, if it's true that he lied. It tells you something about his character, and I think that's very important when you're a member of Congress. It is frightening that a member of Congress says everybody lies. How true. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate it. Well, this morning, there is a massive jump in reported COVID deaths in China. Why the country went from reporting 37 to nearly 60,000 COVID deaths will take you live to Hong Kong next. So China has revised its COVID death toll drastically to nearly 60,000 people since it overturned its zero COVID lockdown restrictions in early December. Beijing was accused of underreporting the severity of its outbreak after reports emerged of overwhelmed hospitals and funeral homes. Let's go straight now to Mark Stewart. He's live in Hong Kong for us this morning. Mark, good morning to you. Until just recently, Chinese officials were reporting just 37 deaths, and we knew it would be higher, but... I mean, this is a surprise. This is a huge surprise. So high. It's high, Don, but it's also being met with a lot of skepticism, and really for two reasons. Consider this. China has a population of 1.4 billion people, and this number of 60,000 deaths, it is just hard to reconcile with the reality. And then the other issue is what we're seeing on the ground. You mentioned hospitals are overwhelmed, crematoriums, funeral homes have had very long lines. And that also calls into question some of this data that we're looking at. Right now, the government says the peak has hit China, but outside observers like the World Health Organization are still demanding 
more transparency. The weeks ahead are going to be very critical. Right now, we are approaching Chinese New Year. And in mainland China, it is seen as the biggest migration of humans on Earth. This is when Chinese families who are in city centers will go out to the countryside and to more rural areas where healthcare is not necessarily as strong. And Don, there is concern that with the new year, with so many people on the move, COVID will spread even further. Mark Stewart in Hong Kong. Mark, thank you very much. New demands from Republicans. After more classified documents are found inside President Biden's Delaware home, we have new CNN reporting. We also sat down with a superstar, actress and music star Janelle Monae about her new murder mystery, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Okay, spoiler alert, if you have not seen it, yes. Can we do that? Yes. Can okay. we? <laughs> we'll just say spoiler alert. Say, say your Spoiler thing. alert. More CNN this morning to come after the break. A modern day whodunit. With twist after twist. We're talking about The Glass Onion, a <laughs> Knives Out mystery, streaming right now on Netflix. The movie chronicles an eccentric billionaire inviting his old group of friends to a murder mystery getaway on a secluded Greek island. And one guest, Andy, played by Janelle Monet, puts quite a wrinkle in the trip when she arrives. Watch this. Can you spot the other thing? The real thing this group has in common? Andy, come on. Oh, Lionel. Everybody knows who Lionel works for. That's no secret. And we know who bankrolled Claire's campaign. But when nobody, nobody would touch Bertie with a 10-foot pole because she went on Oprah and compared herself to Harriet Tubman. In spirit. Who do you think showed up as an angel investor in Sweetie Pants? Huh? Ooh, so she dramatic. Is so good. We sat down with actor and music superstar Janelle Monet. It's good to see you. Welcome, welcome, oh welcome. Goodness. Good Thank morning. You Thank you guys us. so much for having me. People are fascinated with this film, with Glass Onion. Why is that? And you're very intense in it, by the way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was just looking at that scene, and I just remember being in Greece on that island, in that villa, and just the warmth and, and just being with my castmates. I mean, I think this is just such a fun, wild ride of a movie. This is the type of movie, I can't tell you the amount of texts I've gotten from like all my friends. Like I've watched it with my kids, with my mom, with my grandparents. It's like, who doesn't want to solve a murder mystery about a group of rich uh, folks going on an island backstabbing each other? <laughs> <laughs> I've been obsessed with you for a long time, just as a, you know, because I, I know you're from Atlanta. She is obsessed with Glass Onion. She's like, we got to do, we have to interview Janelle Monae. Yeah. You love this movie. Well, and what I loved about your character is that you play multiple different characters. Okay, spoiler alert. If you have not seen it, yes. Can we do that? Yes. Can we? Okay. <laughs> we'll just say spoiler alert. Say, say your Spoiler thing. alert. Okay. Spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But you can say it. Now. But you, you play different characters, multiple different characters. And I kind of wonder what drew you to that role and how it's different than the other roles that, that people know you as playing. Yeah, well, I played a character that has a lot of secrets. And, and with that, as an actor, such a great opportunity to, um, you know, you're hiding something from the audience and there's so much depth there and there's so many layers after layers after layers um, that you have to peel back. And I, when I read the script, I was just blown away by the twist, you know, by, by me playing uh, Helen Brand and also 
Cassandra Brand and also playing Helen pretending to be Cassandra Brand before the audience finds out. Mm -hmm. And then Helen pretending to be Andy after you find out. So all of that, like it was, I knew it was going to be a big challenge in the best possible way. It was essentially like four characters, <laughs> but I was ready for it. I was excited and I just have to give so much thanks to writer-director Ryan Johnson because it, this is a character he created. This is a fun film, exciting film, murder mystery that he created. And for him and Daniel to have me along for this ride is like no small thing. Yeah. You've called yourself a self-proclaimed transformer and that you love going outside of what you think you know about yourself. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Because it looks like you did that a lot here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my word like for this year is discovery. Discover yeah. something new about yourself. And, mm-hmm. and that's always in the back of my mind as an actor, as a, uh, as a singer. Whenever I'm telling stories, whenever I'm creating art, like I want to present something new, you know, for myself, for the audience. Can I just say, uh, personally, <laughs> I think I met you like in 2006 when I moved to Atlanta. Oh my God, it's and been that long. It's been that long. And I used I to see it. you like in the club and I'd see you per- perform. It makes my heart flutter you and a great way to see what you have done to, to Moonlight and Hidden I Figures and now doing Glass years. Onion and your music and just what you're doing for fashion and art and your journey. It's just amazing. Thank did Janelle Monet, did you ever think that Janelle, I hate to speak to you in the third person, no, that Janelle okay. Monet would be the Janelle Monet she is right now when <laughs> you were running around? Atlanta in 2006. Oh my God, you just brought back so many memories. I think during that time in my life, I may have been still working at Office Depot, you know, singing on the library steps of Club Woody and the AUC to anybody that would listen to me, like selling CDs out of my trunk. Like I just remember working hard and I'm happy that I haven't lost that work uh, ethic. You know, I, I love um, creating and, and no matter just thinking about the films that you just mentioned, like if it had not been for the moonlight and the hidden figures, I would not have been prepared for a role of this magnitude. And I just sit in gratitude. I sit in constant gratitude. There's not a moment in my life that I remember not being able to sing or act or perform. My mom was always taking me to the musicals or the after school Shakespearean programs. Like so many people poured into my life to be able to sit here today. So Thank you for, you know what I'm saying? Reminding me of the journey. Mm-hmm. And it seems like I'm still on it. And <laughs> so, still grounded. Awesome. That's the important part. Yeah, so exciting. Thank you so much for, for coming and talk about this. And Thank just, you. yeah, everything that you've done. It's amazing. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Get some rest. Yeah. <laughs> Glass Onion streaming on Netflix right now. Congratulations. Good morning. Five more pages of classified material found over the weekend at President Biden's Delaware home. That is the third batch found within a week. Now his opponents are pouncing as a special counsel investigation gets underway. Apocalyptic scenes in central Ukraine where a Russian missile hit a nine-story apartment building, killing at least 36 people. A deadly attack reportedly with a weapon meant to take out instruments of war, not people. The Ukrainians say they are absolutely certain that the missile that hit this building was a so-called KH-22. That's a cruise missile normally designed to destroy aircraft carriers with a warhead of more than 2,000 pounds. A University of Alabama basketball player now accused of murder after a deadly shooting near campus early yesterday morning. A 23-year-old woman is dead. Player Darius Miles is off the team. He and another man are being held without bond on capital murder charges. 
California getting drenched again. Flood watches in place for 8 million people in the state. The ground there already soaked, but there could be a break in the forecast soon, something that state desperately needs. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have turned 94 yesterday if he weren't gunned down nearly 55 years ago outside of a motel in Memphis. Straight ahead, we're going to speak to his son, Martin Luther King III, about his father's legacy in today's politics, particularly when it comes to voter suppression. House Republicans are smelling blood this morning, demanding more information from the White House after more classified documents were discovered at President Biden's Delaware home. Over the weekend, White House lawyers revealed that the president's staff found five additional pages of classified material. And now the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, has sent a letter to the White House demanding more evidence for a congressional investigation. CNN's Paula Reid joins us now live from Washington. Paula, good morning to you. What's going on here? Well, Don, what we're seeing here is a shift in strategy after a week of taking heat for allowing most of the development, seemingly a new development every day, to come out through the media. The White House this weekend got out in front of this announcement. They are the ones that disclosed that five additional pages of classified material were found at the president's Wilmington home. But the White House says it does not intend to offer public updates consistently. Instead, it wants to let the criminal investigation play out here. President Biden, leaving Atlanta Sunday, did not address the discovery of new pages of classified material among the records recovered at his home. On Saturday, the president's legal team revealed in a statement that five additional pages with classified markings were discovered among the materials previously discovered at his Wilmington residence. As of now, approximately 20 documents have been uncovered at two locations connected to the president. CNN has learned 10 classified documents were found at his former office in D.C., among them information about Iran, Ukraine and the United Kingdom. And those documents included top secret information. On Thursday, the White House revealed documents had also been found at the president's Wilmington home, in a storage space in the garage and in what was described as an adjacent room. Attorney General Merrick Garland also announced Thursday the appointment of Robert Herr to serve as a special counsel to oversee a criminal investigation into the matter. The document authorizes him to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with this matter. Herr is a former Trump-appointed U.S. attorney and Trump-era Justice Department official. He will take over from John Lausch, the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who led the initial review of classified documents found at Mr. Biden's office and recommended Garland appoint a special counsel. Over the past week, new details about the classified documents have leaked out mostly through media reports, with the White House deferring to the Justice Department. We're just not going to get ahead of the process from here. And the president trying to defend why classified documents were stored in the same garage as his sports car. My Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But on Saturday, in what appears to be a shift in strategy, the White House was the first to reveal that additional pages had been found. But that has not stopped Republicans from calling for more investigations. We're doing the Biden family influence peddling investigation. 
But Democrats emphasize that Biden and his team have cooperated while Trump is under investigation for obstruction. Mr. President Trump, who refused to cooperate, who refused to comply with a subpoena and who ultimately forced the Department of Justice to execute a search warrant to retrieve the classified documents. And that is where we need to be uh, centering this conversation. We've learned from our sources that the U.S. attorney in Chicago did not wait for the Biden team to search every possible location before recommending a special counsel. So there are still other spots that have not been searched, which means that there could be other additional classified materials identified. But it's not clear if the White House would update us if and when that happened. All right. Paula Reed, thanks so much. This morning, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is warning House Speaker Kevin McCarthy that the U.S. will soon, very soon, reach its debt limit. She wrote in a letter to him, quote, beginning on Thursday, January 19th, the outstanding debt of the United States is projected to reach the statutory limit. Once that limit is reached, Treasury will need to start taking certain extraordinary measures to prevent the United States from defaulting on its obligations. What does this all mean for you at home? Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans is here to help us understand it. So let's just begin with what... Um, the debt limit is that's going to be breached on Thursday and yeah. then what the debt ceiling fight means to folks. So it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the it's the top line how much debt the United States can have. You know, Congress taxes and spends and the way Congress does business, we run on a deficit and we the, we rack up debt all of the time because that's the way Congress works. And how do we how do we fund the government? We sell treasuries. We sell things that the rest of the world gobbles up because we are so good at paying our bills. People want to own American debt because we don't <laughs> we don't break our promises and we have such a stellar reputation. When you fight about paying uh, your bills, when you fight about not raising the debt ceiling, that starts to undermine your credibility. It's sort of like a credit card limit. If you want to put it in sort of your household finances terminology, it'd be like your credit card limit. Um, and of course, we can't just arbitrarily raise our own credit card limit. That's how the United States is different than our, our, um, our own personal finances. But, you know, if you hit the limit, then you should spend less. But it doesn't mean you can't pay for what you already spent. And that's what's sort of tricky about the situation we're in now. We keep going down memory lane, right? When you finish, we're yeah. like, remember this? Remember we covered this? Remember this happened? Remember? Listen, the obvious answer, right, which is not so simple, is to stop spending, right? How do you fix it? Or raise taxes. Or, or raise taxes. So then what, why do we keep needing to adjust it is, is the question. Like, is there, what there, is... There were a lot of smart people. So 100 years, a century ago, Congress put this limit in to make sure that it was prudent with, it, with, with American finances. They didn't just rack up a bunch of debt. Uh, now we just have, keep raising it. I think we've raised it 100, and 100 times you know, in the last 20 years or something, Republicans and Democrats raise it. If you are serious about spending and not racking up so much debt, you have to spend less or tax more, some combination of that, and grow the economy. When the economy grows, you can also uh, limit how much debt you're racking up. But the, the answer is not to, after you have already passed the spending and tax laws, to then say, oh, we're not going to pay for that. That is dangerous. That is a self-inflicted potential financial crisis when the United States does that. The answer is to not to spend on the front end and to have smart tax policy on the front end and policies for a growing economy. I think they need Christine Romans in Washington right now to help <laughs> get them straight. 
and get this figured out. Please don't wish that on me. Okay. Thank you, Christine, (laughs) very much. Selfishly, we need her here. Now we need to talk about what's happening in California, facing now even more rainfall after another weekend of disasters. The latest round of heavy rain is expected to spill well into today as weather experts warn the oversaturated ground could trigger more flooding and landslides. Governor Gavin Newsom echoed those concerns over the weekend. The challenges uh, will present themselves over the course of the next few days uh, rather acutely, particularly because everything's saturated, particularly because the grounds are overwhelmed. What may appear less significant in terms of the rainfall may actually be more significant in terms of the impacts on the ground and the flooding uh, and the debris flows. This weekend's showers, the latest in weeks of heavy, relentless rain, have only added to the devastation that's unfolded. There was also this moment caught on camera. Look at this. This is Pescadero, California. The roads were so saturated that part of a cliff fell off. Meanwhile, winter storm warnings were posted for the Sierra Nevada mountains over the weekend. The heaviest snow is expected to continue through this evening. And then there was this rescue. Not rain, wind, or high surf stopped these crews from saving a driver in La Jolla Saturday evening. While it is unclear how he ended up stranded there, They airlifted him out of his SUV, hanging halfway off the edge of a cliff. President Biden has approved a major disaster declaration for the state, and it's coming at a perfect time. California is expected to get a much-needed break in the rain later this week, an opportunity to really get those recovery efforts underway. Well, this morning, hope is fading in the search for survivors in the rubble of a Dnipro, Ukraine apartment building after a huge Russian missile attack. Russia has repeatedly denied that they are targeting civilians in this war. But the evidence is clear. The death toll in this bombing has risen to 40. Our Fred Plekton is on the ground in Dnipro and has more. The morning brings to light the full extent of the destruction. The residential building, home to dozens of families, annihilated down to the foundation. Even though rescue crews still work, the chances of finding survivors now virtually zero. All night, residents watched in fear, anger and grief. Olha Nevenchanaya says she passed by the building only about half an hour before it was hit. There are many friends and people close to me here. Many, many, she says. Olena Loyan, stunned by the scale of the destruction, curses the Russians. I simply hate them. Children, people died here. Men, she can't speak anymore. Throughout the night, the death toll continued to jump. On top of the many killed, Ukrainian authorities say dozens were injured, many of them children. In just this location in Dnipro, one of many sites in Ukraine, Russia targeted with barrages of missiles this weekend. The Ukrainians say the reason why the damage here is so extensive is that this building was hit with a cruise missile called the KH-22. That's designed to destroy aircraft carrier strike groups. And obviously, when it hit the building, it completely annihilated it, burying dozens of people underneath. The Ukrainians call the attack state terrorism. And the president says rescuers will continue to try and save anyone trapped here. Let's fight for every person, President Zelensky says. The rescue operation will last as long as there is even the slightest chance to save a life. 
But even the slightest hope has now all but died, and this is essentially a recovery operation. The crews searching for bodies where so many lives were violently ended in an instant. Fred Pleiken, CNN, Dnipro, Ukraine. Our thanks to Fred and his team on the ground there. Up next, Republican Congressman Mike Waller will join us live in studio to talk about the classified documents at President Biden's home and office, the debt limit, the debt ceiling, and what should happen to his colleague George Santos. Much more ahead. Plus this. Coming up on CNN this morning, being prepared to save a life in a moment's notice. How NFL medical teams get ready for game day. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So as we had been reporting here over the weekend, White House lawyers reveal the president's staff discovered five additional pages of classified material during a search of Biden's private home in Delaware. That brings the total number of classified documents recovered to about 20 Now, the Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, has sent a demand letter to the White House to turn over evidence for a congressional investigation. He is defending his decision to focus on focus the probe on President Biden and not the former president, Donald Trump. Let's discuss now joining us a Republican congressman, Mike Lawler of New York. We're so glad to have you here. And I'm interested to know what you think of all this, because over the weekend, Um, Five additional pages of classified information found at Joe Biden's residence in Wilmington, Delaware. How concerned are you about that? And are you satisfied with the attorney general and that he has now appointed a special counsel to investigate this? Well, I think obviously when you look at the former president and the current president, uh, the bottom line is, is this. Classified documents should not be in anybody's home. They shouldn't be leaving the White House. They should be returned uh, back to the National Archives, et cetera. And I think uh, you need to have consistency on this. And so if there was a special prosecutor appointed in the case of the former president, then there needed to be a special prosecutor appointed here uh, to investigate this. And it's not enough to just say, oh, the intent wasn't there. Well, how do we know what the intent was? You know, and the fact that you have classified documents on Iran, on Ukraine, sitting next to a Corvette. Yeah, that's that's a bit of an issue. And I I think uh, the current president should not be so flip about it, especially uh, given his comments when Mar-a-Lago was raided uh, and, you know, his comments suggesting, well, I can't imagine how this could possibly happen. How could anybody be so careless? Well, Uh, That begs the question here. The response from the president has uh, been concerning for many people, both Democrats and Republicans, especially the comment about the garage uh, and and the Corvette uh, that that you brought up. Um, But also his attorneys, they are commending the attorneys because they believe the attorneys at this point are keeping him out of legal jeopardy. As you say, I think most people at home say both guys have documents that they shouldn't have, even though one, as of now, has hundreds more. You don't think the difference in Biden seeming to cooperate and the lawyers turning it over and Trump not cooperating for months and having to have a warrant and what have you, you don't think that that makes a difference to folks at home? I think it's a distinction without a difference. The bottom line I, I can't here... can't disagree with you on the, that. the bottom line here, to me, is either the documents should not have been taken or they sh- or, or there's no issue with it. And so there needs to be consistency when we talk about these issues. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think the fact that we didn't find out about this until two months after the fact, uh, including after the election, 
when the White House was using the raid on Mar-a-Lago as evidence as to why Republicans should not be in control, speaks volumes here. And, and I think uh, it was the right thing to appoint a special prosecutor uh, in the case of President Biden, uh, as was done with President Trump. Uh, and, and we'll have to see what comes of it. If you're explaining, you're losing. Because yeah. they're trying to explain the difference. And we know there is a difference. But as we say to most folks at home, this guy did wrong, this guy did wrong. So but, but right, you, it's a pox on all houses. Congressman, you bring up the need for consistency. How do you then explain or defend, or can you not defend the inconsistency from some of your Republican colleagues, including uh, Congressman James Comer, who's now chair of the Oversight Committee? I'm going to play for, for folks what he said in November to, to our colleague Pamela Brown, mm-hmm. and then what he just said yesterday. Let's play it. I don't know much about that. That's not something that uh, we've requested information just to see what was going on, because I don't know what documents were at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, so, you know, that's something we're just waiting to see what comes out on that. But is it fair to say that investigation won't be a priority? That will not be a priority. Well, this is very concerning. I mean, this is now the second location that uh, the president was in possession of classified documents. Look, what's the vice president doing with classified documents? Congressman Adam Schiff said, I think Congress ought to handle both situations the same way. Um, That is not what Comer is expressing. Should your Republican colleagues be focused on treating them the same way? Look, I can't speak for Congressman Comer, but what I would say is that there should always be consistency in dealing with this. Um, And the fact that uh, classified materials uh, left the White House and went to, uh, you know, the former president's uh, home in Mar-a-Lago or went to the former vice president's home in Delaware Mm -hmm. uh, is concerning. And I think... You know, the law was put in place for a reason, um, and so it should be consistent across the board. Well, you do see the inconsistency in his statements, but when, as relating to Donald Trump. I generally see the inconsistency in statements made by folks on both sides of the aisle on this. And, you know, Adam Schiff, it's nice that he, that he said, uh, I'm going to withhold judgment. Uh, but Adam Schiff is, has not been some innocent bystander in all of these well, I, investigations over the I, years. I wanna- so, It's a little disingenuous. You see, Comer, I mean, there is an inconsistency. Look, there should be consistency with respect to how we apply the law. And any investigation uh, should center around how, uh, you know, these documents left in the first place. Now, one thing that people uh, would would make the case is that the former president uh, had the right to declassify. You can get into whether or not those protocols were followed. Uh, but one thing is clear, the former vice president did not have the right to declassify. That's, so I think that's, that's, actually, just by but that's thinking, actually not. That's, but no, but that is something where people are going to look at with within. That's, that's actually uh, not factual. It's the not for, factual. The former vice president did a vice right president declassify that a, a sitting vice president has the power to declassify. As According of, to who? As of 2003, vice presidents have been deemed original classification authorities. This is when President George W. Bush altered the executive order on that. So the, 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 the White House is claiming that the former The White vice House is not claiming that. Actually, Biden has never. Biden has never claimed that he blanket declassified anything. She's just telling you what the rules are. They're just the law. Can, yeah. can we, I want to move on to something else, uh, because you just spoke about this on the House floor, and that is about uh, the law that funds 87,000 new employees of the IRS. For our viewers, here's what you said on January 9th about why you don't like this. 
I proudly support this legislation and urge all of my colleagues to vote yes and end the 87,000 new IRS agents that are going to terrorize hardworking Americans. Point of fact, PolitiFact uh, called that mostly false, that it's agents. It's not. It's actually mainly employees, everything down to IT employees. They're targeting the wealthy, right, not average folks. And a lot of these are employees that are replacing retirees. Is there anything you'd like to say differently this morning than what you said on the House floor? Because it no, the, seems to the, be quite a mischaracterization the top, of what the, the top bill 25%, is. According to the IRS, the top 25% of income earners pay 89% of the taxes in the United States. So the, the idea that the, the wealthy do not pay their taxes is such a misnomer uh, and, and, frankly, such a political statement. The bottom line here is this. There are not enough billionaires and millionaires in the country for 87,000 new IRS agents and employees to go after, period. Uh, they would go after hardworking middle-class taxpayers. I represent one of the highest that's tax not, areas that's not in the country. But that's not what's happening. You're, you're basing your answer on something that's factually, that's not that, exactly. That's not, not what the you, bill you, does. Not what so they're does. not hiring 87,000 new employees? Well, it's part of its attrition, part, part of its of it. training new people. It's not just, you know, listen, everybody and most has aren't to, agents. Yeah, they, well, most attrition, aren't agents. Attrition, you, f, you fill the spot, correct? So if yeah. you're, if you're uh, eliminating so is, the spot so for attrition... Then obviously, it's not like you're, you're adding eighty-seven thousand new employees to go after people. That's just factual. So they're not—they're not, right. not hiring new people. Well, they're hiring people to take place. Everyone, when there's attrition, when people retire, when yeah. people move on to other jobs, you I mean, have to you, hire. I also, you, it's to budgeted. Hire people. You guys it, are really. First of all, it's budgeted. When when you're talking about replacing people through attrition, it was already budgeted. So th that is, to me, such an ex a gross exaggeration of it. Are you worried? The bottom line for me is very simple. People in this country are nickel and dimed to death. It is too unaffordable for people to live in a place like New York. Rockland County, Westchester, we pay the highest property taxes in America, which is why my first piece of legislation was to double uh, the cap on salt for married couples. People cannot afford to live here. But to uh, focus in on hiring 87,000 uh, employees, agents, you can, you can classify it whatever you want, the objective is to go after hardworking American taxpayers but how do and you know that's the not revenue to increase how, how spending. Congress, that's just, a just point that's of not. fact, this legislation is to increase the amount of the highest income earners that they can to audit because the number that they've been able to audit has gone down precipitously, according to the GAO, since 2010. And I just wonder, finally, if you're concerned at all that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says that this, this would uh, add... To the deficit, the net effect would be a $114 billion increase in deficits over the next decade if you don't fund this. You worried about that? So first, just on the first point, I just fundamentally disagree with you on that. Uh, they are not just going to go after the billionaires and the millionaires. Secondarily, that's just with your, respect... That's your guess? No. I, you, can, you can take it to the bank that there are just not enough billionaires and millionaires to go after. It's just a reality. So... I just fundamentally reject that. But secondarily, with respect to, uh, you know, your second point. The CBO is saying the, this the, is going to add to the deficit if you don't it's a snapshot. try to get that money. It's a snapshot. And that assumes that you're doing nothing else to reduce spending. OK, that that is looking solely at this bill. And it assumes that you're doing nothing else to reduce spending. We have to get spending under control. You just talked about the debt uh, ceiling yeah, fight. I, I don't disagree coming. with you and that we have to get spending under control. But this 
is separate from that and just asking if you're concerned about what the CBO projects. No, I'm not, here. I'm not concerned about what the CBO projects okay. because, frankly, the CBO projections have uh, long been ignored uh, by, by Congress and others. The bottom line to me is this. If you want to rein in spending, okay, then part of what we're dealing with in this debt ceiling fight is that is one of the levers of power to do that. Uh, the White House has to get serious about it. You cannot continue to incur debt at the levels that we have. And both parties are responsible for this. Mm -hmm. This is not one or the other. Both parties have failed miserably when it comes to uh, getting spending under control. But you have to use this as a fight. I'm not concerned about what the CBO uh, scoring is on this one bill, because all it does is it's looking at the snapshot. It's not looking at the totality of what we're trying to do to rein in. We've got to go, but you have to come to a realization on what the facts are uh, with this and not just that. And well, I think that their objective would be the facts don't bear out exactly what you are saying and what others are saying. I know that you disagree with I it, disagree but we like to stick to the facts. Thank you, Congressman. We appreciate you joining Thank us. You. Thank you so much. Up next, Martin Luther King III will join us live. We're going to talk about his father's legacy, voting rights, and the new statue in Boston. A lot to discuss. I often think of the question that Dr. King asked us all those years ago. Where do we go from here? Well, my message to the nation on this day is we go forward. We go together when we choose. That was current President Joe Biden speaking at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta ahead of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The historic church was where the civil rights leader served as pastor until his assassination in 1968. President Biden also making history as the first sitting president to deliver a Sunday sermon from Ebenezer's pulpit. So joining me now, the eldest son of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the global human rights leader himself, is Martin Luther King III. Thank you, sir. Good to see you this morning. Thank you. I, I, I want to know, what does it mean to have a sitting president for the first time delivering this sermon from the historic pulpit where your father once stood? Well, of course, that was extraordinarily significant uh, that the president of the United States would be at Ebenezer Church delivering the message on, on Sunday. And it was certainly very appropriate in light of the fact that uh, Dr. Warnock, uh, as a United States senator also and pastor, uh, is now helping to not just talk about issues, but to deliver for the state of Georgia and for people across the nation. And so it certainly was appropriate that the president would be delivering that message to the nation to corral and bring us together. We need someone standing for unity because there are others who are standing for division. Mm -hmm. So in 2023, how are we delivering on, on your dad's dream? We still got a long way to go. Uh, that's what I think about every January. Dad wanted to focus on uh, poverty, racism, and violence and the eradication of those triple evils, and yet we've not achieved it. And this is a very extraordinary holiday this year because also January 16th happens to be the birthday of my wife. So today is very <laughs> special for us. I 
take she's being honored at Reverend Sharpton's breakfast along with Speaker Pelosi and others. And so today, uh, I think my dad and mom are looking down, uh, smiling, but yet saying we still have a long way to go before we reach that dream of freedom, justice and equality for all humankind. Well, especially delivering on voting rights, you know, it, it is stalled now. What is your take on that, especially considering that was that was a huge piece of uh, your your dad's legacy that he wanted to continue to carry on? No question. And it's very tragic that even in our own state of Georgia, there are restrictions that have been put in place. Uh, our goal, one of the goals that we have at Drum Major Institute, I'm the chair and Andre is the president, is to create the climate where people have unfettered access to the polls uh, and there won't be restrictions put in place. We should be making it easier to vote, not harder. Our laws in some states have made it harder for people to vote, and yet we're not, we've not passed the John Lewis bill or anything to make it easier. And it's going to be quite difficult for any of that to happen with this Republican-led Congress. But we have to keep exerting pressure on them. Uh, nothing happened the modern civil rights movement until it happened. And so my point is, as we're exerting pressure, we will get there. Uh, it may not be this year, but we're going to get there on, on voting rights. I've got to ask you about something that was um, unveiled uh, this week. And there's a monument called the Embrace that symbolizes a hug that your father and mother shared after he won the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize. It was unveiled in Boston just last week. There's been some controversy around it. You know, what did you think when you saw it? What do you think of it? Well, first of all, um, to me, I was I was certainly moved uh, by the overwhelmingness, the the, the large uh, capacity of this of this of this uh, sculpture. And one of the things our daughter said was, "Look, it represents love 360." Uh, you know, coming from a 14-year-old's perspective, um, I, I people have. Yeah, it's subjective. Everyone has their opinions, and but opinions are like butts. Uh, you know, everybody's got one. But my issue is, I think that's a huge representation of bringing people together. It's called embrace, and uh, I th I think the artist did a great job. I'm 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 satisfied. Yeah, it didn't have my mom and dad's images, but it represents something that brings people together. And in this time of a of day day and age, when there's so much division, we need symbols that talk about bringing us together. It's the it's personal for me because. Had my mom and dad not met uh, in Boston, maybe I wouldn't be here. So I'm grateful, number one, uh, that the it, it talks about the love story. And so people will be debating about it for a long time, but for years. And then the other thing, final thing I'll say is it also represents mom and dad. Many monuments are done just around dad, but it represents the kind of relationship they had working together and they were a partnership. I'm glad you cleaned up that analogy for morning televisions. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. It's always a pleasure to see you. Good luck to you and your family, and we're thinking about you. We appreciate you appearing. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for that opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wonderful to hear from him today. All right, ahead, wait until you see this. An inside look at the NFL medical teams as they get ready for game day. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta literally takes you on the field behind the scenes to show you the preparations that are credited with saving DeMar Hamlin's life. Everybody's just more relaxed. You don't have the cameras. You don't have the Four-man rush, retreating, puts it up for grabs, and it is! 
bring it in, and the Bengals survive. <laughs> the Cincinnati Bengals defeating the Baltimore Ravens yesterday, 24-17. Now the Bengals head to Buffalo uh, to face the Bills in the divisional rounds of the playoffs. It is the first time they'll play each other since DeMar Hamlin's on-field collapse after su- suffering a cardiac arrest. And CNN is getting an inside look at the NFL protocols that doctors say help to save Hamlin's life. It, uh, it all starts before each game when medical teams and NFL officials meet to go over emergency plans. And our very own Dr. Sanjay Gupta went behind the scenes in Jacksonville Saturday and got an up-close look at those preparations. When Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest, the game stopped. Now another Bills player is down. Maybe Hamlin. But for the emergency response team, everything was just getting started. Go ahead and go over the cop. I don't like how he went down. We're going to need everybody. I'll call him. I'll call Bring everybody. We need to head away back, everybody. Bring the cop with medics, all of you, and get Woods out here. As rare as this all is, I'm going to explain now the remarkable chain of events that came together to save DeMar Hamlin's life. So this is actually the EAP for... It starts with this. So what is the EAP? What does that stand for? It stands for Emergency Action Plan. And, and that takes place for every game. So basically any time or any place that players are going to be active, there has to be an emergency action plan. I've been administering CPR. The EAP was followed to a letter that night. In that moment, everyone knew what they needed to do, how they needed to do it, and had the equipment to do it and felt comfortable. Dr. Alan Sills is chief medical officer of the NFL. He's giving me a sideline view of the preparedness that goes into every game day. And once you see this, you will probably never watch a game the same way again. You may have missed this pop-up blue tent. It's on every sideline like a medical exam room. Now we've kind of made this a medical space, even in the middle of a very busy stadium. It's just so much easier to do things in here, because like I said, everybody's just more relaxed. You don't have the cameras, you don't have the fans. Or this, the injury review screen. So we can be down here on the sideline, and the spotter's booth, if they've seen an injury video, they'll cue it up for us, put on the video exactly what we need to see. We can ask them to run it back. We can talk, and we can talk the spotter's booth. They are the eyes in the sky. Hey. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. So uh, this is is another part of our game day medical preparations. And the real goal of this booth is to help spot any injuries or illnesses on the field. It can be hard to see the whole field from down there. Right. Probably to me, one of the most unique things in sports is the spotter can directly communicate down to the referee. These people can stop the game. So we watch every, every play probably minimally four times, and then we'll, we'll go back and watch it again. Got and it. so, you know, we just want to make sure we don't miss anything. It's always about the right people, the right plan, and the right equipment. We have almost 30 medical professionals, and everyone has a job to do. ER doctors, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, paramedics, x-ray techs, and airway specialists like Dr. Justin Deaton. 
So this is the bag that I carry, um, and it's got a number of things in here that we could use. Um, the first thing is um, a portable video laryngoscope. We have a portable ultrasound machine um, that we can use, and we also have ability to perform surgical airways. I really have uh, all the resources available here um, that I would have in an emergency room. What's the biggest challenge of, of that scenario versus being in an emergency room? Well, the biggest challenge is, is the external environment and the chaos of the situation. When you have a, a larger than average sized person that's laying flat on the ground and not able to be elevated to a certain level with extra equipment plus you know, cameras and, and other people around, those are really the, the confounders and the things that make, uh, make it more difficult to, to manage. How does everyone know you're the guy in, in charge? I wear a, a red hat on the sideline, and that signifies me as the uh, emergency physician, the airway physician, so that even the other team knows when I come out what my role is. Every game comes with new lessons. For example, on September 25th, when Miami Dolphin Tua Tungavailoa stumbled after a hit, he was allowed back in the game. That won't happen again. You know, we changed the protocol earlier this year when you and I spoke to say, if we see something that looks like a taxi on video, they're also done. And as the teams all warm up, there is one final crucial step. Every time I'm in the operating room, we do something known as a timeout. Everyone stops what they're doing, make sure that everyone's on the same page. This is the same sort of thing that's happening here behind me. It's called a 60-minute meeting happens 60 minutes before every game, a chance for all the medical professionals to make sure that they know who each other are and make sure that they know who's going to do what if there's some sort of crisis out on the field. <laughs> all right, so uh, let's start with introductions so that everybody's familiar with the medical staff that's here at the game. Uh, I'm Kevin Kaplan, head team physician orthopedics with the Jaguars. Justin Deaton, airway management physician. So uh, most important thing, Justin is going to be on our 30-yard line. Um, he stamps just to our right. If a player goes down, obviously he won't know if it's orthopedic or internal medicine. He'll step out onto the field. Our all-call sign is an X, so if you need him to come out, uh, he will come out with an X. Uh, all of the important equipment, airway, uh, defibrillator, all the medications are all behind him uh, with our paramedics on our sideline. If a player needs to get taken off of the field, uh, the ambulance is going to be in the tunnel to your right. If you need anything at all, we'll be out there for you guys if you need us. Otherwise, hopefully we have a safe and healthy game. Good luck. Keep in mind the medical team was able to get to DeMar Hamlin within 10 seconds. And speed really matters here. Every additional minute that someone in cardiac arrest goes without CPR, mortality goes up by up to 10%. This is a process that's in place for every single game. And we train in the offseason. And just like the players train and practice, we do as well. So I have tremendous confidence. But um, you always want to see a game with no injuries. And, and you want everyone to to uh, frankly be bored on the medical side. That's a good game from my standpoint. I hear you. <coughs> there, Sanjay. What, what a piece. I mean, we have never been behind yeah. the scenes like that. And, and on top of it, Sanjay, these players continue to get bigger, faster, stronger, meaning the hits can get harder. Is that something these medical teams are thinking about too? I, I think so. And I mean, if you look at the, the sort of history of the NFL, it's sort of fascinating. I mean, when the NFL started about 100 years ago, 
Uh, average size of a lineman was about 190 pounds. Say, now the average size is about 300 pounds. Wow. And you add to that the speed, as you mentioned. Yeah, they've gotten a lot bigger and a lot faster. 40-yard dash, around five seconds. So think about that. Someone 300 pounds plus, 40-yard dash, five mm -hmm. seconds. If you get hit by somebody like that, it's about 1,700 pounds of force. Whereas one of the doctors said to us, it it's literally feels like a ton of bricks that are falling on you. So you, you have to sort of keep up with the types of injuries. We talk a lot about concussions, obviously over the last 15, 20 years, but these types of injuries that we saw with Damar Hamlin, soft tissue injuries, orthopedic injuries, they are all obviously of huge concern as well. And that's why you see this evolution of the, the medical capabilities. It's pretty remarkable. You know, I work in a hospital that was like basically doing drills for codes in the hospital they do that before every game to try and you know address anything that might possibly arise it was fascinating yeah. i'm not surprised that they the protocol watching it it was a very good piece but yeah. i was surprised how many times they watched the plays i think she well, said they watched yeah. them four times yeah. to make sure that there's that was fascinating sanjay we, we've got to run though thank you nice job love it love it thank you, you very it. much very informative you well this morning's number is 4.8 billion harry enton here to explain <laughs> A live look at LAX, known for traffic, that is Los Angeles. And traffic across the country is getting worse as Americans get back to their normal lives after the pandemic. More cars are clogging up the roads, especially in big cities. So our senior data reporter, Harry Enton, has this morning's number. Good morning. What is Good it? Good morning. Okay. This morning's number is 4.8 billion hours. That's the time spent in traffic congestion by all Americans in 2022, or 51, average, 51 hours per average driver. Now, where do you get the most traffic? So let's take a look at the urban areas, 2022, worst traffic, the average driver per year. I would have thought it was New York City. I would have thought it was Atlanta. No, yeah. it is Chicago at wow. 155 hours. Boston was second at 134. New York at 117. Philly and then Miami, all above 100 hours. Minneapolis, I looked it up, way less than that, so perhaps that's a plug for you. <laughs> Uh, now, in terms of the trend line that you were looking at, so this, I think, gets at the point that you were pointing out that it's gotten bad or it's gotten worse, I should say, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So this is the traffic in the top 10 urban areas. We're now at 101 hours per the average driver in the top 10 urban areas. That is way up from where we were in 2020 mm -hmm. when it was 53, nearly back to 111 where we were in 2019. Now, here to me is the most interesting trend, which is compare that to the mass transit uh, delay, or the people, number of people that are using mass transit. The traffic congestion is now 88% of where we were in Boston, Chicago, D.C., and New York City, but the rapid transit usership is just at 50%. So people are getting back in their cars, but they're not getting back on the train. Because they're afraid to be around maybe. people? Or, or maybe they've just gotten used to it. I'm surprised that L.A., Right? One was saying. Surprise LA has bad traffic. No surprise LA is not. Oh, in the oh yeah. you're right. Yeah. What's up with that? Okay. I don't know. We got to go. So they tell us. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, we gotta get, we're going to beat the traffic and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> see you tomorrow. CNN Newsroom is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.